0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The text today is John 12, verses 20 through 27. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Those who love their life will lose it, while those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Here endeth the lesson. I want to say what a joy it is for me to share these precious days of Holy Week with you and to the wonderful Kathy Jacob for her overly gracious introduction of me. We are so proud of you at Beeson Divinity School and thank God for your ministry here. Holy Week is the most beautiful and most important season of the Christian year. Even though some of my dissenting cousins might ask, aren't we making too big a fuss here? Isn't every week holy? And the answer is, actually no. Not in the way that this week is holy. Just as every day is not your birthday or your wedding anniversary, this week is holy because of how it began. On Palm Sunday, Jesus entering Jerusalem to the acclaim of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And how it will end. In what the ancient church called the pridium of Monday, Thursday, Good Good Friday and Holy Saturday leading to the Easter Vigil and the sunrise of resurrection. Something eternally important in the history of salvation is going on here. It is not a time for joke-making and levity. And so if you haven't bought your ticket on Ash Wednesday, it's time to get on board now. The train is about to leave the station. In the 19th century, William Rada famously said, the Gospels were passion narratives with long introductions. And that's certainly true of John, even more so than the Synoptics. Scholars who study John usually divide it into two large sections. Chapters 1 to 11, the Book of Signs, the seven great miracles recorded culminating in the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, and the Book of the Passion, chapter 13 to the end. Chapter 12, where our text is found, is the Hinge chapter, a transition between the Book of Signs and the Book of the passion. After the last dinner in Bethany comes the parade of Palm Sunday with the crowd shouting, Hosanna, a Hebrew word, Hosanna, meaning, please God, save, save now. It was one of those words the German Christian struck from the Bible during the Third Reich. They had a substitute acclamation. "Sieg Heil," God, save. The crowd shouted, Hosanna! Please, God, save. Among the 100,000 or more crowding Jerusalem for that holy week were certain Greeks who wanted to meet the man who had caused such a commotion. Sir, they said to Philip, we would see Jesus. In some churches where I have preached, those words are written on the pulpit. You have another legend that is written here. It's also very good, from the Bible, from Paul. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's a great one, Frank. But many churches have these words we would see Jesus as a reminder to the preacher that the primary task of the one who stands in this sacred place is not to while away a few minutes of a dull Sunday by charming stories and social comment, but to say with John the Baptist, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sir, Madam, we would see Jesus. In response to their request, Jesus makes this astounding statement. These two verses that seemingly collide with one another. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And this one. Those who love their life will lose it. While those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In the first verse, Jesus says something obvious. Almost a truism. You know, the thing about truisms is they're true. A seed of corn or wheat or tomatoes or cucumbers or anything, so long as it remains intact, unbroken, impervious to pain or dissolution, so long as it remains alone, the King James Version says. Alone. Well... It might be beautiful to look at, a perfect specimen worthy to be displayed in an agricultural museum or examined under a microscope by a scientist. It may be all of these things, but it will never, ever yield any fruit. It will remain barren, infertile, alone. Of course, Jesus is talking about his own death, isn't he? He's saying again what he said so many times before. The Son of Man came not to be served, not to serve to be served, but to serve. Not to be ministered unto, but to minister. To give his life as a ransom for many. He's talking about Holy Week. He's talking about the cross. And the cross is a problem for postmodern consciousness. If we must have any symbol at all, let us have the circle or the ring, a world of infinite possibilities where nothing is decisive, nothing is conclusive, nothing is crucial. And that would be fine. If only Jesus were a philosopher, a Plato, an Aristotle, or his contemporary, Seneca. Or if Jesus were only a moralist to give us a code of behavior, a set of rules. But we need something more, don't we? We need forgiveness. We need redemption. We need a new life, eternal life. So Jesus presents here not only the pattern of his dying as our Savior, but also the pattern of our living as his servants. If Jesus' statement about the seed and the soil is something everyone agrees with, his application is something no one agrees with, especially in our culture. Those who love their life will lose it. Those who hate their life in this world, which means those who expend their life to the point of not clinging to it, not grasping at it, they are the ones who will end up keeping their life unto eternity. Can you believe this? It flies in the face of everything we know and are taught in our culture today. Whoever loses his life will gain it. Whoever embraces self-expenditure will find fulfillment. Where does this come from? For we deny death and we shun death. Like the Hollywood starlet who was asked about her future in the movies and she said, I don't know what my career will be like. I hope I'll be around approximately forever. Approximately forever. Or like this article from the Wall Street Journal. Personalized caskets complete with one's monogram and a symbol of a favored club or religious order are offered by the Casket Company of Memphis. The company says a psychological study it made showed how such personal symbols tend to help the bereaved family cope with the feeling of having control over what might be otherwise uncontrollable. Might be otherwise uncontrollable? We deny death, we domesticate death, we do everything we can to insulate ourselves against death and to insure ourselves against death, to smother the pain of Reality and the superficial facade of what we call the good life, the happy life, which all too often is anything but good or happy. Have you ever gone to a party and you just listen in, you just sort of eavesdrop a little bit? I do that. Um, Listen to the tone. Sometimes just close your eyes and listen to the tone small talk at a party. How are you? Oh, fine, fine, fine. When all the while, we're not fine at all. For well, we all have what Thomas Merton called those private demons that hang like vampires on the soul. Jesus says this Holy Week, I invite you to join me in a different journey. Bonhoeffer says when Jesus calls someone to follow him, he bids him come and die. Remember, Jesus chooses to die deliberately, freely. He was no mere victim of a political cabal in ancient Palestine. Don't you know who you're talking to? Pilate snapped at Jesus. I have the power to condemn you or to set you free. To which Jesus answered, You have no power except that given to you by my Father in heaven. I can lay down my life and I can take it up again. Are you willing to lay down your life so that you can take it up again? You don't have to. Yes, you can try to hold on to your life, to keep it for yourself. You can say what Ted Turner said a few years ago. I don't need any Jesus Christ to die for me. I've had a few... Beers, I've had a few girls. If that means I'm going to hell, so be it. You can grasp and claw and clutch until you have it all. Vine, vine, vine. But at the end of the day, Jesus says, it will slip through your fingers like sand. And you will lose it all. This is Holy Week. I invite you to join me in a different journey, Jesus says. I invite you to lose your life for my sake and for the sake of others. I invite you to forsake sterility in favor of fecundity, to let go of your life so that it may bear fruit in others. The name for this process in the New Testament is love. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. And I have not called you servants, Jesus said, but friends. This is the amazing grace of Jesus Christ the grace that loves us unto death and again unto life. Let us pray. Now may the grace of God our Father and the love of Jesus Christ his Son our Savior and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with us now and forever.